when you came back, did you feel like the country, the country by drafting you into war stole your youth? This is the Made You Look Podcast Run Through the Jungle Episode Part 2. My name is Deontay. Thanks for listening. In the previous episode, we discussed the Vietnam War combat experiences of an African-American soldier, Sergeant Frank Pierce, and what his service meant in the context of America's treatment of African-Americans from the Vietnam War era to the present. In this episode, we continue that discussion with another African-American soldier who is a combat veteran of the Vietnam War, Sergeant Augustine Sproul. He is my uncle. And until we had the conversation you are about to hear, I thought I knew everything there was to know about him. Sergeant Sproul, or Uncle Teen, which is what I call him, is my mother's brother. I have never seen him lose his temper. He is always poised, calm, wise, and he always has a broad smile when greeting you. Uncle Teen is built like a dependable defensive lineman. A result of being born in the country and being no stranger to hard work. As far as I knew, he went into the military after high school in the 60s. He came out, he found a job, he got married, and started a family. He worked at that same job until it was time for him to retire, and he was able to buy a beautiful home in New Jersey that I always enjoyed visiting because you could feel the relaxation and love while there. Plus, they had a pool. From very humble beginnings, he worked his way into the middle class. He didn't do it alone. He married an incredible woman who worked just as hard and was pivotal in his life, my Aunt Edie's. To me, Uncle Teen had achieved the version of the American dream available to African-Americans who are not independently wealthy. And I thought that was all there was to his story. I could not have been more wrong. Uncle Teen came of age in a time of mass anti-black violence protest, and uncertainty. The 1960s. He was one of Mrs. Sproul's nine children, and before he could really plant his feet firmly in society as an adult, he was called to make the ultimate sacrifice. In this conversation, you will hear Sergeant Sproul's story, a story I did not know. He has never scored 50 points in an NBA game, He has never scored a touchdown in the NFL. He has never pitched a no-hitter in the major leagues. And he has never starred in a movie or had a hit song. His story is one of sacrifice to a country that made it clear it did not view him as equal. A sacrifice that cut him off from taking advantage of a rare opportunity, one he would never get back. A sacrifice that an American born with all the wealth and advantages life can offer, was too cowardly to make. Yet that wealthy and privileged American would become president anyway. As you listen to the story of Sergeant Sproul's sacrifice, keep in mind the chaotic atmosphere here in America right now, the very real pandemic that is negatively impacting African Americans more than any other racial group. As you listen to the story of Sergeant Sproul's sacrifice, an execution of his duty, and a frenzied war zone. Think about how America has always communicated to African Americans that we are not equal and our lives are not valued by the state. 
as we learned once again when police officers burst through Breonna Taylor's home without warning, murdering her as she slept. As you listen to the story of Sergeant Sproul's sacrifice, understand that it is an important story because so many other African-American Vietnam combat veterans made the same sacrifice despite receiving no reciprocity from America. Some of those black American veterans lucky enough to make it back home and start their own families are now watching their grandkids grow up. What are those veterans to think about the America of today? Rife with the same problems for black life that existed in the 60s and 70s when they answered the call of duty, putting their lives on the line for this country. What world will their grandchildren inherit? Their grandchildren that I am sure will end up resembling the faces of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, and Elijah McClain. Think about all of the above as you listen to the story of Sergeant Augustine Sproul's sacrifice. I want to start at the very beginning, Uncle Teen. I, I want you to tell the listeners your full name and your rank when you left the United States Army and what year you left the United States Army. I am uh, Augustine Spur. Um, I, I entered into service 19 August 7, 1965. I came out of service August the 1st, 1967. I came out as a rank of Sergeant E-5. So I want to get into um, how you found out that you were going into the Army, where you were. Um, you already told us it was 1965, but in 1965, you had already uh, been a college, not a college graduate, I'm sorry, high school graduate at that point. You were um, living, you were not home, but you were living somewhere else and you were saving up some money. Uh, can you tell us about that, where you were um, and what you were saving up money for? Okay. I was uh, saving up money to, um, I was living in New York at the time. And I was trying to save up money uh, because at this time, my mother really couldn't help me. And I was trying to get enough money. I had like a partial scholarship. But before I was able to start college, I was drafted into the service, United States Army. Now, you had a partial scholarship to play football at what schools? I had a one to A&T. North Carolina A&T. And Elizabeth City, North Carolina. Uh-huh. So North Carolina A&T and Elizabeth City College in North Carolina had given you partial scholarships, but... Yes, and also Shaw University. Okay, Shaw University as well. Uh, so you were saving money, you were living in New York and saving up money so that you could afford the other half of college because grandma, right. your mother, wasn't able to pay. That is correct. Now, tell us tell us why, um, essentially, grandma or, or your mom wasn't able to pay. Tell us where you grew up, 
tell us uh, your your hometown and and what what and basically what were the circumstances of, of you growing up around and how many brothers and sisters you had. Okay. Um, I grew up. Uh, I had um, five uh, five sisters and four brothers. I uh, I grew up in North Carolina. And my father died when I was 15 years old. And at the time when my father died, there was seven of us. And my mother had to provide for the seven. I was uh, five, uh, uh, five of my sister and brother was under me. So they was all kind of young when my father died, I think. And believe my baby sister was about four years old, five years. And it went down the line. So I had one brother that was older than me. He was 16 and, 16 and a half years old. So those are my siblings. And it was kind of hard for my mother basically. So therefore, didn't have a like farm to be able to take care of. So therefore, at the time that I came out of high school, they were drafting people to go into the service. And it, enough, I guess at the time when I was in New York, I was drafted there. Uh, at Whitehall Street in New York, and uh, they uh, sent me to uh, Fort Jackson, South Carolina. So you were drafted at Whitehall Street, and that is in, is that the Bronx? Uh, Whitehall Street is downtown New York. Oh, okay, so New York City. At, yeah, New York City. Okay. And that's where you underwent basic training, right? I stayed there a week, and then it, I, I was shifted to Georgia, Fort Gordon, Georgia, mm-hmm. for my basic training. Okay, so the week the week that you did in South Carolina was more so kind of a almost like a um, orientation type of thing. Uh, no, I think what happened uh, it just like was a staging area, you know, basically. Okay. Uh, you um, have a, I guess, a group, and they really were drafting so much, they probably didn't have enough state, uh, enough room to be able to train them. So therefore, we just stayed there, there uh, just for that, during the week, maybe, like I said, a week. And they shipped us off to everybody that had came um, to uh, to Georgia at that time. And this is, um, this is, I'm sorry, Uncle Tane, this is, this is 1965. At this time, were any of your other uh, siblings, any of your other brothers uh, in the service? At the the time, there was no one else in service. I was the first. 
Okay. And um, so at the time, while I was in, in Vietnam, my other brother, baby brother, Eugene Spruill, he, uh, he went to Korea. And um, so I served uh, the other words during the time. Uh, my brother, um, we wrote to each other. And uh, so he said they went back, they drafted him. My LD, they drafted him, but he didn't pass the first time. But then while I was over there, he said they had drafted him again. So he he asked me what would I prefer to go into the Air Force for four years or either come to join the Army. So I told him if it was me, I would take their four years in the Air Force because it was very rough over there. So while you were while you were serving, um, while you were actually serving in the army and you were in Vietnam, uh, Eugene, yes. Eugene Sproul, which is my uncle Joe, uh, who has now passed on, he was actually and he was in the service, but he was sent to Korea. And Uncle LD, which is your other brother, um, uh, was act enrolled. Well, he drafted. He got drafted a second time and actually enrolled yes. in the United States Air Force. Okay. Uh, he asked me a choice, and I told him I would rather take the Air Force for four years than to be in the Army for two. So he uh, did that, and he ended up serving his four years in Florida. Mm-hmm. What so, was your What was the name of your um, What was the name of the hometown that that you're from in North Carolina? Tell everybody the name of the hometown. Uh, the hometown was. What type of town was Hopgood when you were growing up? That was uh, like a small town, but it had the, uh, from uh, uh, first grade to eighth grade in Hopgood. Then after that, you went to Brawley High School, which is in Scotland now, for your high school. What was the name of high school? Brawley? Broadly, okay, and um, in terms of in terms of when you were growing up in the, in the social atmosphere of of Hopgood, uh, where you grew up, how was the social atmosphere in terms of the relationships between white people and black people in your hometown? Well, I guess um, most of I guess maybe uh, everybody more like uh, stayed. Uh, the black, but most of them with the black. But it really, uh, it's, it's just that I guess uh, they kind of more like uh, they more like say in your place or whatever. Basically, you know, the black with the black, and you know. So so segregated, yeah. extremely segregated. Yes, uh-huh, basically, you know. Black people stayed on one side of town, basically, white people on the other. Mm-hmm. And 
coming from coming from that atmosphere, um, growing up, coming from that atmosphere, uh, what what was your overall feeling towards America as a young man before you even went to Vietnam? Like, how did you feel about America, the country? Well, well, as um, American, the way that I felt, really, I, I didn't feel like uh, why should I really serve, you know? Because uh seemed like everything was uh geared to uh to the white. And um yet it seemed like the most of the black was getting drafted, you know. And uh, so I really felt the same way that I sh- why should I serve, but I knew if I didn't serve then uh I'll be either probably locked up uh, whatever, you know. How did um how did grandma how did grandma my grandmother your mother how did she feel about you uh, being drafted when you told her? Uh, well, um, she understood, I guess, but my mother uh, always uh, seemed like she always had a word or two, you know, from the Lord, whatever. She just said, just uh, just go and be careful, and uh, and she'll be praying for me, you know. Absolutely. So what did what did grandma do for work? What did she do for work? How does she provide for for yourself, my mother, um, and your other siblings? Well, my mother, um, she got um, like a little check for all, all the kids. Mm-hmm. But my mother uh, used to go out and sell uh, Avon. Um, she worked in the fields. What type of field work did she do, Uncle Tim? She did like um, cotton, but after at that time, she had we had a, like a little farm, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, when I went in, as to say, a little land, mm-hmm. and uh, usually they had like uh, raised tobacco, used to raise corn, mm-hmm. and. Okay, so she had she had her own. This was her own land that she raised these yeah. crops on, right? Tobacco, corn, um, and yes. uh, and uh, what, what else was back there? There was a chicken coop back there one time. I remember. Oh, oh, we raised uh, uh, pigs. Yep. And we raised. Uh, my mother used to always uh, order little chicks, mm-hmm. uh, maybe a hundred, two hundred, mm-hmm. and she would raise chicken. You know. We know that. Uh, you grew up uh, in Hopgood, North Carolina. We know you, you grew up, uh, by the time 1964 hit, you were 18 years old. You were in New York. Um, you grew up during a very tumultuous time in America. You grew up during the pretty much the civil rights era. Uh, we know that as a black man in the South in the civil rights era, uh, you felt like America was for white people and not black people. So you felt like it was... Uh, it was kind of uh, hypocritical for them to ask you to serve in a capacity to give your life almost for the country, for a country that didn't respect you. So now we'll fast forward to Georgia. Now you're in basic training. What um, okay. what what was basic training like for you? Basic training. Um, it was, um, I guess, uh, at the time, basically, it just was like uh, uh, tough. 
know, getting you in condition, you know, mm-hmm. basically. Uh, we used to sometimes be glad when they get about 90 degrees, we could, they wouldn't train you, you know. In other words, it's too hot, you know, so. And then, um, remember, I guess uh, we had like a certain little group that we hang together, you know. Mm-hmm. And it basically was like um, usual, it would be black, usual, and most of the time you see it as the white hang together, whatever, you know. And I guess it's like, um, you know, you uh, it seemed like that basically the way it was, you know, in the, during the training. So it was pretty much... When you were in the military, even doing basic training, as you guys are yes. getting trained, it was still yes. pretty segregated. More like segregated, right? Mm-hmm. How were the white, um, how were the white soldiers treated in basic training versus how the black soldiers were treated? Were you treated equally, even though you guys had segregated yourselves or were segregated? How were you treated? You know, basically, what happened is just that uh, you know, um, I guess. Uh, it wasn't no different hardly. It seemed like when you had uh, the sergeant, it looked like uh, everybody kind of like got the same kind of like hollering at, you know? That's the way that if you mess up, you know? So everybody got yelled at pretty much. Yeah, but you know, I guess uh, with the sergeant, they want to, I guess, show their authority more like it. So other words, if anyone's kind of messed up, if you... Uh, you know, this part, whether you was uh, white or black, if you fall out of cadence and uh, you better catch it real quick, you know, because otherwise you stop the platoon and call out your name, you know. So that worked on both ways, you know, because what happened when you be portrayed with that convoy, you know, in other words, and you're in a parade, and they'd be marching, you know, they let the, uh, I guess, uh, civilian or whatever, they'd be coming to see. And in other words, if you have a step or whatever, it's so easy to catch, you know. So therefore, I guess they said, well, we have to try to get the white person as well as the black, making sure it don't make them look embarrassed with your platoon, you know. So you're in Fort Gordon, Georgia, and I want to fast forward to the end of basic training. What happens at the end of basic training for you? Uh, well, see, uh, after, uh, during the time, um, while I was doing basic training, I uh, volunteered for Air Force, Air, um, Parachute, you know? Parachute company, so paratrooper. It, yeah, because, yeah. Because what happened, you always get extra money. So we had signed up when um, one of the, uh, I guess, uh, Air Force guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, he wasn't an Air Force guy, a parachute. Mm-hmm. You know, so they, he said that he had been in three years and he only jumped four times, you know. So meanwhile, he was getting paid that extra money, basically. So, we joined, we, we joined up, I guess it may have been about five or six of us, you know. And then what happened, and Nick didn't know, they was fighting in Vietnam. And you saw on TV how they was caught. And you 
know, jumping in the bushes, you know, it was so thick, you know, other words, they just landed. And they couldn't get down out of the trees, and so they was killed. So I I decided that um, I didn't want that. So, <laughs> <laughs> and, and everybody else, you know, they just they were doing the same because if you go in there, that's the first thing you're going to be doing, jumping, you know, because they want them to go in. And so anyway, that's it. And so moving on to... Um, Advanced training. I went to Kentucky for advanced training as a recon. Mm-hmm. Now explain to us what uh, what uh, what was the name of the base you were at in Kentucky, and this is still 1965, right? Yes, that's right. Fort uh, that was Fort Hood. Fort Hood, and you were in advanced uh, I'm training. Sorry, I'm sorry, my apologies. Fort Knox, Kentucky. Fort Knox, Kentucky. You're in advanced training. This is 1960. Yes. This is still 1965. What um, yes. and you were recon. Can you tell everyone what recon means? Well, each, um, recon is like follow a servant. Other words, you are in the front line. Other words, um, you go out and uh, check and see uh, how heavy. Uh, your enemy how um, and you go in and so you can report back to the company so recon soldiers are forward forward frontline soldiers who go yeah forward service they're on the front lines they go into the actual war zone and they report back on exactly where the enemy is or how many of the enemy that they see stuff like that Okay. Okay. So you're in recon. You're now in Fort Knox in Kentucky. What happens next? Oh, after I graduated uh, from recon, I was uh, signed to go to Hawaiians. And uh, everybody knew at that time the 25th Division was moving out from Hawaii. So if the name called for Hawaiian, that mean that you be going to Vietnam on the boat. Ah, so, uh, okay. It was like two white and two black. So four of y'all. Yeah, the four of us from the recon. Everybody else went to like uh, German, different places. You know. So why why was it that uh, why why was it that the soldiers knew if you were if your name was called and you were going to Hawaii, why did that mean that you also were going to end up in Vietnam? What was going on in Hawaii? Well, see what happened. They was getting uh, getting prepared uh, for the whole forty fifth division, a, a unit division. That means that uh, about four thousand people gonna be going to Vietnam. So you get to Hawaii because the twenty fifth company. Is, has been called up and getting ready to move out to Vietnam. So Hawaii is kind of like a staging area where they get everything and everybody together, put you on a aircraft carrier, and now you're headed out to sea because you're going into war, into Vietnam. And this is about, you said this is about uh, January 1966? Uh, no, no, uh, and that was um, at the end of, uh, it was before, it was before New Year, so therefore... Uh, 
So the end of '65, right? December. Yes. Uh-huh. Okay. Okay. So, so how long did it take y'all by boat, by aircraft carrier, to get to Vietnam? Um, it took us about thirteen days. Thirteen days. Okay. And then at that point in time, had it already? So, when, by the time you actually got off of that aircraft carrier and settled in Vietnam with your company, was that was? Are we talking around January now, '66? Okay. Uh, usually about the, I guess maybe about the tenth or eleventh now. Okay. Uh, in January. Okay. Now, where where in Vietnam, where where are you stationed? I was stationed in Kuchi. Kuchi. Okay. That's, the, uh, that's out from Saigon. Uh, I guess maybe about twenty-five miles. I guess. Uh, 25 miles away from Saigon. 25, 30. 25 30 miles from Saigon. Okay. Now, what was your what was your um, particular uh, specialty in recon? Like, what did you do? You had a particular role. What was your role? Uh, okay. Now, what happened? Uh, recon. I didn't. I didn't um, go into recon. I was trained for recon, but uh-huh. when I got to Hawaiian, the recon was still up. Mm-hmm. So oh, okay. Pro, okay. We were, uh, you know, a more like standby, and they signed me to the mortar platoon as a radio operator. So the mortar platoon as a radio operator is actually where you ended up going, even though you were trained for recon, because that was already full. They sent you to the mortar platoon to to be a radio operator. So uh, one day incident, I want you to remember basically what happened, huh? The recon, when they first went out, I guess after we got over there, they mm. got wiped out. Wow. Complete, you know, so. How many guys? That's 20 or 30, you know. So 20 or 30 it's soldiers as soon as you got there. It just say, they just said that, yeah, recon squad got wiped out, busy, but I was already assigned to a radio operator, so I said, thank God I'm done with them, you know. So basically, so basically, if you had a been, if you had, a, in other words, if you had a stay with recon, you would have been wiped out too. Yeah, that's a very good possibility. Now, this is this is when you first, this is when you first got over to Vietnam. This is in Coochie. Tell us about your actual first combat mission. What what was your objective? Where where were you headed? What happened? Okay, um, my first. We was to replace the big red one, and what happened? It just like you know, like shot go off. It sound like a pop but meanwhile, you look up and see, because uh, by being assigned to the first platoon at the. Need air 
Say they that you were coming back across the rice paddy and you got pinned down. Can you tell us? Yeah. Tell us what do you mean? Um, like where where were you in terms of like okay. when you say a rice paddy and how did you get pinned down? Okay, it's uh, it's almost like an iron triangle. Basically, what happened um, in the and uh, like Vietnam, they have like a like a rice paddy. Mm-hmm. So what happened? We had the um, airstrike came in and they bombed and did everything and the part napalm and then we went on across it with people but then when we came back after about five hours later then we got pinned down so what the problem was they got those tunnels and holes and they can go in. And a lot of time when they bump, it really didn't get down deep enough, you know? Mm-hmm. So what happened when they came, we got pinned down, we had to have some air support, not just the uh, uh, motor platoon, we had to have like the airplanes, you know, mm-hmm. to support us. That did like the first time, you know? So, so basically what you're saying is uh, you were in your first um, combat mission or the first mission in which you took fire, you all were advancing into a part of the country and you didn't encounter any resistance because it had already been bombed and napalmed. So you really didn't see any enemy fighters, any Viet Cong. But on the way back, when you were on the way back through that same area is when all of a sudden you saw or you started to un- to come under fire because the Viet Cong soldiers were able to uh, build tunnels underground and holes in the ground whereby bombs could not penetrate. So they were able to essentially just wait for you guys to come back and then attack you. Yes, that is correct. You know, uh, those tunnels and everything had been there for years and years, I guess, when the French it ran out, I guess, to Frenchman many, many years ago. Basically, what happened, they had tunnels, they go in, and like a little hole that they would be shooting at you from the left side, and then you started shooting back at them, and they just go to the right side, basically, here, then shots coming from your right. So that's how they did, because 
we used to have, uh, they called them Tunnel Rich. Tunnel Rich. Tunnel Rich. That's what okay. they called. They had to go down into the tunnel. So I didn't have to worry about that because I was too big. You have to be small, you know. Yeah, yeah. And that's what they called them. Go down and find. Because mm-hmm. they had an underground hospital that whole 4,000 people. The enemy. Yep. Uh, so they they have been there for years and years digging in South Texas. So. so you guys are coming back through the same area that you had already advanced in. You come under fire from the enemy who has underground tunnels and holes where they're able to fire on you from. And of course, yep. this was the first time that you were taking fire. Uh, and what what happened? How did you get out of that situation alive? Well, on that uh, on that one uh, is um, one of the sergeants who had been over there before. Um, I guess uh, for a short time, and he knew basically. So what happened? All of a sudden, they had like a bead on me, and I could see them working their way straight to me, basically. But I couldn't see nothing, so. He hollered, shoot in the trees. And once everybody started shooting in the trees, they started falling out like flies, you know? Yeah. And evidently, that person that uh, uh, that was had a bead on me because it was walking it straight to me, and I didn't know where. I just kind of like tried to draw my leg up, but I didn't know basically. But when he hollered, shoot in the trees, because they camouflaged, oh, uh, you just can't see them. Most of the time, I said that it's good thing they couldn't shoot it straight, you know, because sometimes they give you a chance to get down, you know. So basically, the way you all got out alive was that you had a you had a member of your your uh, your 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 particular soldiers at that time who had been there before. And he just he advised y'all to just start shooting at the trees. You couldn't see them, but they were dropping out of the trees like leaves. Is what you're saying? That is correct, man. You know, uh, you know, because you couldn't see nothing, so you know you just don't be shooting. Mm-hmm. And once he said shooting the trees, that's when we begin to do damage, and we able to uh, uh, be able to move on. And just to give the listener uh, an idea of how difficult and deadly that situation was that occurred in broad daylight right oh yes and you still couldn't see it and afternoon they said it's one of the toughest days basically they camouflage so good with the trees and whatever that big and another thing that alert bitches you have to watch um and say you have to watch the um the people that working in the rice paddy because they do like a a regular person. But if you go by they say watching the whole company will going by and just like that it was about six or seven. They put down their hole and because the weapon weapon was being up killing them, basically. But that is the way that you have to always be watching and and was thankful that uh, we had someone that had been there before, you know? So you're saying even though, even though you all would be 
essentially crossing rice paddies, which is pretty much like their version of what we would call fields. So, so you would have someone who appeared to be a farmer and you would pass them by, but they would then give, they would then of course reach down and they wouldn't be planting rice. They would actually pick a weapon up and start shooting. Right. Cause see, they have like a hole, just like you, um, mm -hmm. um, chopping, you know, but, um, you know, I guess they learn, you know, it's glad to have someone that. You know, they don't want the guys off, basically. It's that they think you're going by, you know, after you go by, you know, because the whole point, I'll say this, if they kill one American, they was content if they get killed. That's why, you know. They were dedicated to their cause, and it didn't matter if it cost them their life. Right, and uh, as long as they kill one American, they, they did their job. While you all were there, while you while you're engaging in combat, how did you all feel about the overall war? Did you feel like the war, the purpose of the war that you were that that America was told we were trying to fight communism, etc. That did you feel like that was the purpose of the war? Did you feel like the war was unjust? Uh, to me, uh, you know, I always uh, never could understand what is going on because uh, I guess they was kind of like lying that um, you know I guess it's kind of like um, false gospel you know because we had nothing really to be going after them but I guess uh, evidently who decided we going to go into war and to me up to this day I still don't understand because after a while they just stopped you know yeah, but then all them people died, basically, next thing you know, it's like uh, negotiates and whatever, basically. To me, I really never understood, and I guess I never will, you know, because let all them people that die, you know, yeah. for some cause that I guess for whatever reason they had to me. Most of the black folks can say, wait, why are we fighting those people, you know? Yeah, you, you you all just didn't understand, or it wasn't clear to you why you were over there killing those people, and it and it didn't it didn't seem like there was anything the United States had to gain at all, and and you were just killing, you know, other poor people. Yes, you know, and basically even uh, um, when you had the uh, officers, some of them, the officers and sergeant, whenever they didn't understand, basically, wow, you know, but. Mm -hmm. Is uh, you have to do what you have to do, otherwise your career could be messed up. You know, and people that have been in, you know, master sergeant and everything, and they could risk if they, you know, not do. You know, basically yeah. they still didn't, but they were like wise or whatever. But mm -hmm. they just never did. You know, so that's the whole thing. You know. How many combat missions did you go on? Oh, my, I really can't even remember, because like, uh, one time I was going out about every day. Mm. And you may go five uh, miles, uh, you know, uh, ten miles, you know, coming, you know. Then when you get back in the uh, afternoon, it may get in around about six o'clock, and then you got to go on guard duty, you know? 
Mm. Everybody gets in the hole like uh, when happens, there's usually like two people in the hole. So you have to like uh, 50% alert, you know, and sometimes you be so tired from walking all day, you know. The thing I had, I'm, proud, I'm fortunate, the guy that I was with in the bunker, it was a brother. But the way we had it set up, sometimes instead of two hours on and two hours on, if I felt good, I may stay the three hours and let him sleep. And we did fight first, you know? Uh, for the listener to understand exactly how exhausted you were in the environment that was happening around this time in terms of the war environment, you would go out on missions you would you would be out all day on missions, then come back from your mission, and then you would have to then go on guard duty for two hours. Oh yeah, uh, the, when they say fifty percent, that two hours on, two hours sleep, two hours on, two hours sleep. Okay, so that's what fifty percent uh, means. Yeah. Okay. Fifty uh-huh. percent alert. So two hours on, two hours off. Right. Uh-huh. Now. There was an incident. Um, there was an incident that that you told me about that was particularly um, graphic and particularly uh, uh, something that you saw happen with a tank that that happened in combat. Can you discuss that? Okay. Um, um, what time um, was going out with the tank? You know, um, the tank. When I happened, uh, we was kind of like uh, following right behind the tank. In other words, the tank was a shield for us, you know? Okay. And uh, so we had part two tank. And so what happened there, uh, like I was saying, as a radio operator, I'm always up front, you know? And we saw one of those 50 calibers hit one of the... Uh, um, get calm, and it took off half a head, you know. Mm. And you know, uh, that's what like uh, terrible say here, like the body is right there, but half of the head is gone, and the other head is split just like uh, splitting a watermelon, you know. Yeah, and that was wild. Yeah. That was wild. The tank was shielding. So, so the the enemy was were they firing at the tank or? Oh yeah, that, okay. you know. See, but the thing about it, uh, a lot of them they was uh, pumped up on uh, uh, marijuana or whatever, you know. Cause sometimes mm-hmm. we break in on them. They had like a big old pipe, you know. You could see when they had that uh, pipe. They used that in the year. Used to say deep pipe. Yeah. That's a big pipe, basically. They have all that marijuana, and so what happened? We break in on them sometimes. Because, see, they can't be in their right mind. Nobody sat there and shoot at a tank <laughs> right. with a little carbine, you know? <laughs> right, right. So, so that's why, you know, basically, they was at, I guess they'd be high on their work, and they feel like they could just kill everything, basically, you know? And so there was, there was a... Could. Go ahead, I'm sorry, Uncle Tim, go ahead. There was another uh, there was another incident you told me about that occurred where a soldier had, I guess, planted a Claymore mine. Yes, that's what they uh, do. Um, 
they kind of like set it out front or whatever, basically. Because see, what happened when we out in the field, we don't have uh, that white fence there uh, guard your base, you know? So what happened, you might be uh, like many miles away, but we don't have a fence around it. So meanwhile, you put that Claymore mine out and um, set it out a good little distance, but it can do the damage. But what happened, see, you got to kind of watch that, you know, because they crawl up there and they turn it around. And then... Uh, when happened, they turned it around, and then they stood out there, I guess, dancing, like, and you, and you know, the person said, I'm gonna, I'm gonna wipe them off, because they knew they had a clay mine, but what happened, a clay mine, let me explain to you, is like thousands of bullets, you know, it's like a, like a big clay uh, metal. Mm-hmm. And when it when you designate it, you got the little remote there. And when you designate it, it just blows all the like down a little like BBs. Little shrapnel, shrapnel, yeah. Yes, and, and and it spreads. So when they dance, and they you know they know that people, and so when it did, he shot it off, and he ended up uh, uh, going to Walter Reed. I never knew how he made out. It just took half his summer off, you know, because they had turned it around. So, so and let then me. They jumping up and waving their arm like you know. So basically, what you're saying is, just to kind of give again the listener a picture of the environment that we're talking about. You have when you're out in the field on missions, you don't have that barbed wire fence to establish a perimeter. So you put down these claymore mines so that if if there's any enemies that are following you, any Viet Cong that are following you or tracking you, if they don't see those mines and they step on their mines, it'll kill them while giving away their position. So that's the kind of tool that, that you all were using to keep them off of your off of your tracks so to speak or from from trying to ambush you but they had the Viet Cong had soldiers who would quietly sneak up on those mines and actually turn them in the direction where if they were detonated they would fire on your soldiers as opposed to toward the enemy and they would turn them and then they would jump up and and dance around and then the soldier would see them and detonate the mine, but the mine had been turned around, so the impact of all that shrapnel went toward the soldier who detonated the mine and not toward the enemy. Is that pretty much what, what occurred? That's right. Mm-hmm. And you said it tore his stomach off. Now you you were in you said you were in Vietnam from nineteen from January of nineteen sixty six until January of nineteen sixty seven. No, I left there, I guess, with my time. I left there in um, December. Oh, so December of 66. I flew back. I flew back to California, and I got home at Christmas Eve, you know, to my mother's house, you know. So Christmas Eve 1966, your tour of duty in Vietnam was over at that point. Yes, um, basically. And you were in... Actually, actually, <laughs> we, uh, December, probably about the first, about the fifth of December, 
they uh, if, uh yeah, about the fifth of December, they started sending the people home that went over there that had been over there like a year, you know. So you that was we went out to the last minute. They used to would let you, um, um, once you get like 30 days, they wouldn't let you take you out no more. But we went out until the last day. And they left with the first half. And they left around by the, by the 5th or 6th of December. And we stayed there by another two weeks. So let me understand what you're saying. You're saying that you all knew that your time was going to be up on a certain day in December. And most of the time, when you're a month out from your from your tour ending, they would not put you out in the, in the war zone. But you're saying that your particular um, your particular crew actually went out into a war zone up until the day you left. Yes. That is, that is, it, wow. Uh, it's like the first half, they said, uh, it'll be some leaving the day and the next day, the other crew. We end up being like um, two weeks uh, after they did. Because people done got home and wrote back to it, you know, let you know how they was doing. And, uh, and a lot of people, uh, Co-pilot, he got killed from the helicopter. You know, basically, and mm. we had a few people that got killed. You know, after that day, we had put been going catching the plane. The next day, we ended up staying there about a couple weeks longer. You know, so that's why I got a little nervous. You know, near the end, you know, because you, know, you sit in one half, and then all of a sudden, the next half don't go the next day. You know. You were in Vietnam for basically a year, and of and during that year, there would be some times where you were in the war zone in combat, uh, pretty much every day, and you survived a whole year, and you made it back home, and you saw around you so many of your fellow soldiers being killed in action on a daily basis. What did that do to you mentally? Like, how did you, how did you deal with that mentally? I get what happened with me, basically. You know, I, you know, my mother used to always when she writes a little bit, and then, but I guess it's the prayer, you know, really God, you know, because what happened? See, now I would fight up a storm, as you might put it, I would fight up a storm, but then after the fight is over, I'd be in my bunker. I'd be just shaking, you know? Mm. I'd be, and you know, I guess it hit on me. But when it was, when you get go, I just can be, I'd be wanting to kill them all, you know? Mm-hmm. But then afterward, you know, I'm just sitting there in the bunker, you know, even. I just, I guess the, the fear really come down on me, I guess, afterward, but I'm always, because it was a lot of soldiers sometimes, they couldn't find, you know? I, have, I didn't have no problem. Fine, it's just that I have the after effect. It's just like I've been sitting right there almost like having a chill, you know? So it was basically like when you when you were out there in combat, 
you you didn't have any problems engaging in battle in terms of firing your weapon or doing what you had to do to kill the enemy because you felt like if you didn't, it would be your life that would be lost. And then when you got back to the base and you got a chance to kind of settle down and take in what just had happened and there was no bullets flying and no and no action, but you got a chance to settle down and take in what happened, you said you would begin to shake as you considered or thought about what had just taken place, how many people had just died, how you actually survived and made it back. 100% correct, you know. It's just, but I would, I thank God that I was like that. You know, basically what happened, you know, you saw some people, sometimes they didn't fire, and sometimes your um, colleagues get killed, you know. When you... They, they be can't pull the trigger, you know, they be hard to shoot, shoot, you know, I don't know what's going through their face, you know. It just, it, does it seem like they were paralyzed by fear? Yes, uh-huh. And that never happened to you? No. Were you, were you ever scared? Even though you didn't hesitate, were you ever really scared? Oh, I, I, I be scared because what happened, you know, you really couldn't see it back up my best friend. He uh he died, you know. You know, I was uh he was with the first platoon and since I was a radio operator with it, you know, he died I think in July when we was out, you know. How did he die? Uh he got uh he got uh the first time he got uh hit and like mm. a grenade, you know. Mm. So he got hit with a grenade? But then, but then when he went out I guess in July was it July? Uh, yeah, I think he, uh, we landed. I didn't have to go out that time. The mortar platoon, I had moved back to the mortar platoon mm. as the gunner now, you know, so I would be able to, um, um, they called in the support. Uh, I was no longer the operator. I was, uh, operating the mortar, you know, they had show me and, uh, and the quicker you can. So since I was real quick getting the coordination in mind, so they assigned me the number two gun. Mm-hmm. And so therefore, I have to, you know, get it quicker possible to respond to the support. But what happened that day, I guess we lost so many people. Um, the Amora platoon stayed at the base. Uh, they had the artillery covered so they could reach further. And they flew out by helicopter and whatever, and they dropped them. It's just like they were set up. When, so when they drop you off in the rice paddle, then you run towards the woods. And they were sitting up there in the uh, woods waiting for them, and they were picking them off, you know? Mm. And my friend got killed. I'm telling you, Betsy, it was really... Because what happened, he used to write, basically, read, write my mother and mm-hmm. whatever letters to my friend, you know. It was just scary because I used to have to go out like sometimes four nights a week for ambush, you know. Because you were out in the field all the time in combat, he would be the person who would write the letters back home to grandma and other and other, and your other friends. Yep, and always, you know, he said, I just uh, always doing good, you know. You know, basically, he knew basically what to like right, because you know, not gonna let her worry. You know. Yeah, yeah. So he, he really did because see, now the different with uh, we, 
people only had to go out like one time, you know, maybe once a week or sometimes two times. Because see, the first squad go out, first platoon, first squad go out, the second squad go out, the third squad go out at night. But see, what happened in radio operating, firearms service had to go every night, you know? Every night there's a, a squad go out, about, there's about 15 people with the machine guns, you know? So therefore, uh, he gets a lack of little break more so than me, you know, because uh, he go out maybe every third uh, night, you know? And with the radio operator and Paul uh, Arturba goes out every, every time the platoon go out, you know? Wow. Yeah, so that's it. That's a that's so a lot. what happened. So he got shot, and they they told me he got shot in the head, you know, because he had got hurt from the um, grenade of my friend. So he had got he had got happened? he got hurt in a grenade attack before he got shot and killed. He had been hurt in a grenade attack earlier. I want to now fast forward to December twenty fourth, nineteen sixty six. So now. Now you are, is it 66 or 67 at this point when you were home? Oh, uh, it, was, it was 66. So you're now home. Was there a lot of anti-war protests, a lot of anti-war um, uh, political talk in, in America at that time when you got back? You know, uh, they were saying like uh, using songs and everything, bring the boys home or whatever, basically. But I guess... Uh, I didn't really, uh, really see too much uh, in North Carolina because what happened after I left, because uh, I had like a two weeks, and I went to New York, uh, and uh, it wasn't much of, uh, you know, most of the day, you know, you hear people talking about, you know, uh, a lot of people are rejecting it, and they are going to... Um, Canada and places, you know, keep from going in. Right. But uh, really, I didn't really see too much from that part, you know, and, and shortly after, like, my two weeks was over, I had to go to Texas, Dallas, Texas, Fort Hood, for the third my next eight months, you know. And, that, and at the end of the eight months is when you were out of the military completely. Oh, at the end of the eight months, I came out eight uh, August first, so it just that seemed like um, when we came back and getting a job was kind of difficult, you know. It seemed like uh, once you file your um, paperwork and you know you have to put down there Vietnam, you know, mm -hmm. or whatever, and uh, seemed like they said, okay, we'll give you a call, you know. But I think they just threw it in the. Um, and the garbage, you know? That's the way I felt, because it seemed like you never did get the call. And um, people were saying at that time, people that went to Vietnam, they all messed up in the head and whatever, you know? So basically, employers <laughs> thought you were, they, they thought you were, uh, I guess, crazy because you had fought in war. Yeah, you know, I, it seemed like they had, uh, what you call stigma or whatever, basically. You know, you answer whatever questions stuff, but seem like they might say, throw that away. And really, it was hard 
until the government got involved, you know? Mm. You know, because they were saying that the people come back and they can't get jobs, you know? For, you know? So, I'm not exactly sure when the government got involved, but I know somewhere. They got involved. Yeah. What, what, um, I'm thinking about before you went in to the service and was before you not went in, but before you were drafted into the service, I'm thinking about the partial scholarship that you talked about and the fact that you were working in New York to save money to go to college. When you came back, did you feel like the country by drafting you into war stole your youth, so to speak? Well, you know, I tried to um, think politics. something that you can't change because it's already happened how did um how did war how did war change you as a person or did it change you as a person like were you were you a different person when you when you left for the war then you came back i think you know it's seeing so much happen you know i try not you know um let it eat because what happened when you see things going so much, it can hurt you more because it eats your inside, you know? Yeah. Because you know it's not right, basically, and yet it seems like the other side, they uh, evidently were able to go to college, and a lot of times, they, they one that couldn't go to college, some of them flee uh, to Canada, and, and then, uh, like, uh, you know, different ones use excuse or whatever. You don't keep them going in, you know? So I just try not to hold the in because they always taught it'll hurt you more than you let it out. Let your feeling, you know, come out. So I think, you know, I was able to get my point across to mm. you know? So you never, so you never, instead of, Instead of holding it inside and letting it fester inside of you, you focused on moving forward and what you could do to improve your life now. Yes, right. That's what the thing about you know because uh, if you sit and dwell on it, mm-hmm. that means that you'll be stuck mm-hmm. in a spot. You know, so, you want to never be stuck. You want to be moving forward. You know. And it's, and like I said, you know, uh, you have that feeling, you know, you feel like that, uh, <laughs> that you want to just, mm, I get that angry sometimes, Papa, you know? Yeah. But um, I think, I really thank my mother all the time, you know, that bitch, she always would say, you know, uh, peace. 
you have three uh, wonderful, lively, beautiful grandchildren now, um, and they're very important to you. Do you, when you look at America now and the way things are happening now in terms of the recent um, police killings, uh, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, and others, um, and you look at the, the racial situation in the country, you look at just the overall condition of the country, how do you, <clears throat> how do you feel in terms of the environment in the country that your grandkids are going to inherit when they become adults? What type of world or, or uh, what type of America do you feel like they will inherit as adults down the line? <clears throat> that they would inherit a better, um, a better life than we do. But right now, I really feel for my grandkids, you know, because being black, you know, and being alone, you know, it's a, uh, it's like the dangers, you know? Mm-hmm. And the thing about it, even you're not alone, it's still danger at being black. So uh, to me, I just hope and pray that they would change because there's no way they have to worry about what you have to say and the way that you behave, you know? Mm-hmm. And you're doing the right thing and yet you're still being killed. Uh, just being black that's the way I, I simply look at it now and I'm just hoping there, there are better ways you know because right now I love my grandkids and I just wouldn't want them shut down as as if they are a rabbi or a deal you know mm-hmm. and, and you just want them to be able to have the treatment like uh, the white, you know? Yeah, so you say you just want them to be treated with the same type of uh, treatment that white people are treated with because they deserve right. it. Right. Yeah. Right. So, so that's what I really feel. I feel that it really got to be some changes because right now, basically, they just like killing them. And, and, and the only thing, basically, is that when they get caught, you see a video, basically, but the thing about it, Usually, right now, the police really won't even turn their video on most of the time, you know? Yeah. yeah. So I really feel, I really feel and I worry, basically, about that more I'm uh, worried than I have in such a long time, basically, that the way that they come up, they seem to be so quick to shoot a person, you know, as long as you're black, you know? So I'm hoping that and I'm praying that the, the life would be much better than what we have today. Sergeant Augustine Sproul, better known as my uncle, Uncle Teen. Thank you for joining me in conversation about your experiences in Vietnam. I really appreciate it, Uncle. Thank you very much. Thank you once again to Sergeant Augustine Sproul. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast and share the podcast with friends and family. 
If you wish to donate to keep the podcast coming, you can do so via Cash App. Our cash tag is dollar sign DSU01. Until next time, be cool, y'all.